You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 157 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all recall, we left off last week with the immediate aftermath of the Battle of Fair Oaks, or Seven Pines, as the Confederates called it. After his retreat up the peninsula and back to the very outskirts of Richmond, the battle had been Joseph E. Johnston's bid to go over to the offensive and drive the Yankees back from the gates of the endangered Confederate capital. But while D.H. Hill's division of rebels had shoved back the Federals through sheer determination, there hadn't been a decisive breakthrough, and in fact the first day of the battle had been a badly bungled affair on the part of the Confederates. Johnston hadn't exercised effective command of his army, while across the way, George McClellan had had no influence whatsoever on the fighting, other than, on that first day of the battle, to order Bull Sumner's Second Corps to be ready to march if needed. When all was said and done, the Battle of Fair Oaks produced about 5,000 Federal and 6,100 Confederate casualties and little else of military significance. By far the most important result of the battle was the wounding of Joe Johnston on May 31st. With Joe Johnston badly wounded and out of action, Jefferson Davis quickly decided that he had no confidence in Johnston's second-in-command, Gustavus Smith, and the Confederate president wasted little time in changing generals. And so on the afternoon of June 1st, 1862, Robert E. Lee rode into Smith's headquarters to assume command of the rebel army defending Richmond. As we've mentioned before, the Confederacy faced crises on several fronts in the spring of 1862. In the war's western theater, southern armies had suffered multiple disasters, beginning with the fall of Forts Henry and Donelson in February and continuing through the loss of Nashville, the defeat at Pea Ridge, the repulse at Shiloh of a major Confederate counteroffensive, and the surrender of New Orleans, the South's largest city and most important port. And in the east, of course, George B. McClellan's Peninsula Campaign had carried the Army of the Potomac to the outskirts of Richmond by late May. However, the period between May 31st and July 1st witnessed Robert E. Lee's debut in Army Command and climaxed in the Seven Days Battles. All in all, June 1862 initiated a remarkable turnaround that set the stage for a major reversal of the strategic picture in Virginia. 
With the benefit of 150 or so years of hindsight, it's easy for us to think, well, of course there would be a remarkable turnaround once Robert E. Lee assumed command. He's Robert E. Lee for Pete's sake. But it's important to remember that at the time when he took command of the Army of Northern Virginia, there were many who doubted Lee's ability to lead the Confederates to victory. At the beginning of the Civil War, Robert E. Lee possessed an abundance of reputation, but a shortage of experience as qualifications for command in combat. Lee was the son of Light Horse Harry Lee, who had won fame in the Revolutionary War, but the younger Lee spent most of his career in the United States Army as an engineer. His reputation rested principally on his service on the staff of Winfield Scott during the Mexican War and on the praise Scott lavished on Lee after that. Lee had commanded cavalry in Texas from 1855 until he resigned his commission in April 1861, but he had spent much of that period tending to administrative matters and more than two years on leave trying to settle the estate of his father-in-law. In Texas, Lee had led expeditions against Comanche warriors and Mexican bandits, but had himself seen no action in either case. So, really, beyond some genetic advantage inherited from his father and the good opinion of the elderly general-in-chief of the enemy's armies, Lee, at the beginning of the Civil War, seemed to have little to commend him as a Confederate general. During the first year of the war, Lee initially commanded the armed forces of Virginia and performed worthy service in raising, training, and equipping the state's volunteers. But when Virginia's regiments mustered into Confederate service, Lee became a general without an army. He served as unofficial aide-slash-advisor to Jefferson Davis during the summer of 1861, and in that capacity he went to western Virginia that fall to oversee Confederate efforts to win back that part of the Old Dominion, but the campaign turned into a disaster and Lee returned to Richmond. Next, Davis assigned Lee to command the Department of South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. In this capacity, Lee made the wise but unpopular decision to withdraw troops and guns from the vulnerable coastal positions in favor of deploying them defensively up the rivers where southern forces had some chance of blocking federal penetrations. After that, Lee returned to Richmond during the spring of 1862 and resumed his duties as advisor to Jefferson Davis, functioning at most as an unofficial chief of staff. During the early phase of McClellan's Peninsula campaign, Lee had the uncomfortable job of mediating between Joseph E. Johnston and the Confederate president, neither of whom had much confidence in the other. After the Battle of Fair Oaks, George McClellan didn't immediately learn that Joe Johnston had been wounded and wouldn't discover until around June 10th that Robert E. Lee had assumed command of the rebel army. But had Little Mac known earlier of the change in enemy command, he likely wouldn't have been concerned. He told Abraham Lincoln that he preferred Lee to Johnston. McClellan said that Lee was, quote, "...too cautious and weak under grave responsibility." wanting in moral firmness when pressed by heavy responsibility and likely to be timid and irresolute in action, end quote. McClellan even concluded that, quote, 
Lee will never venture upon a bold movement on a large scale, end quote. McClellan's assessment of Lee is remarkable, not only for the, for the fact that rarely has a commander so badly misjudged his opponent, but also because in describing Lee as too cautious and weak under grave responsibility, wanting in moral firmness when pressed by heavy responsibility, and likely to be timid and irresolute in action, well, you realize, of course, that little Mac could have been looking in a mirror and describing himself. At any rate, when Lee took command of the army that he would make famous, his Yankee counterpart wasn't the only one who doubted his ability. Southern newspaper editors, politicians, civilians, fellow officers, and enlisted soldiers all had strong misgivings about this staff officer being given such a weighty responsibility during the Confederacy's moment of crisis. After his misfortunes in Western Virginia the previous fall, he had been tagged with the derogatory nickname Granny Lee, and now, when his first orders were to dig fortifications outside the endangered rebel capital, Confederate soldiers grumbled about performing this menial labor, better fitted for slaves, and referred to Lee as the King of Spades. Neither label, not Granny Lee nor this new one, compared favorably to Stonewall Jackson's excellent nickname, and in fact, Southern newspapers compared Lee unfavorably to Stonewall, whose successful Valley campaign had just catapulted him to national prominence. A soldier in the Confederate ranks wrote home, saying, quote, I know little about Lee, but I doubt his being better than Johnston or Longstreet, end quote. James Longstreet himself would later write that, quote, The assignment of General Lee to command the Army of Northern Virginia was far from reconciling the troops to the loss of our beloved chief, Joseph E. Johnston. End quote. Longstreet pointed out that Lee had failed in Western Virginia, and although he then performed credibly on the southern coast, those were but weak recommendations. Longstreet stated that, quote, Officers of the line are not apt to look to the staff in choosing leaders of soldiers, either in tactics or strategy. There were, therefore, some misgivings as to the power and skill for field service of the new commander. Replacing Joseph E. Johnston as commander of the Army of Northern Virginia, the challenge facing Robert E. Lee was immense. Northerners confidently expected McClellan to deliver a crowning victory that would crush the rebellion. But the weather turned out to be Lee's strongest ally that first week of June. The heavens opened up, buying Lee more time as the rains flooded much of the Chickahominy River bottomlands, washing away bridges the Yankees had thrown up and making it impossible for McClellan to move his big siege guns closer to Richmond. Lee used this gift of time to formulate a plan to drive McClellan away from Richmond. After the Battle of Fair Oaks, Little Mac had done little except consolidate his lines against further attack, so Lee knew that another direct assault on the federal positions would likely meet with little more success than before. But, if he could threaten McClellan's lines of supply, then he could force the Union commander to leave his defenses and engage in battle on open ground. That was the only chance the Confederates had for success. 
If they did nothing but react to McClellan's movements, they would eventually be defeated by the overwhelming weight of Little Mac's big guns. Lee knew that to save Richmond, he had to seize the initiative and force McClellan to dance to his tune. In order to successfully attack McClellan's flank, Lee would have to weaken his center to provide enough troops to give his offensive punch some power. To that end, Lee immediately ordered the construction of a line of fortifications south of the Chickahominy, running down to the James River. Once these fortified lines had been completed, the Confederates could then hold that sector with a relatively small number of troops and move the rest to be involved in the flank attack. And so, over the next three hot and humid weeks that June, there was much digging and much complaining by the rebel soldiers and the uncomprehending Southern press. The editor of the Richmond Examiner angrily proclaimed that an ounce of Stonewall Jackson's aggressiveness was, quote, worth all the ditches and spades that General Lee can display on this side of the Chickahominy, end quote. Lee was amazed at the resistance to manual labor by the rank and file, and stung by the criticism in the newspapers, but he didn't explain himself or his actions. He did, however, vent his frustration to Jefferson Davis, who, for his part, was delighted by Lee's frequent communications. Compared to the hostility and lack of communication that characterized Joseph E. Johnston's relationship with Jefferson Davis, Lee was refreshingly candid and informative with the Confederate president. And the result was that Lee had a much better working relationship with his commander-in-chief. Lee would find his tenure in command relatively free of presidential intrusion, thanks in large part to the working relationship he'd already established with Davis, while serving as the president's chief military advisor, and also to the steps Lee took in his first weeks in command to simply keep Davis in the loop. As Lee's plans developed, he realized he needed to know more about the Union dispositions north of the Chickahominy. For this information, he turned to his 29-year-old cavalry commander, Jeb Stuart. Lee wanted Stuart to pay particular attention to how strongly McClellan had anchored his right wing there north of the river, since Lee was considering that sector for a potential flank attack by Jackson's Valley Army. Jeb Stuart, excited by the possibilities and the chance for heroic deeds, suggested that perhaps rather than conducting a simple reconnaissance of the Yankee lines and then returning by the same route by which he'd set out, he could instead ride all the way around McClellan's army. Although Lee didn't forbid such an action, he did strongly caution Stuart, quote, not to hazard unnecessarily your command, end quote. Jeb Stewart set off on June 12th with 1,200 troopers and officers, including the commanding general's son, Colonel Rooney Lee. We aren't going to say very much here about Stewart's famous ride all the way around McClellan's army, since we're going to cover it in the next couple of members' episodes. But we will tell you that on June 15th, when Stewart's exhausted but elated force arrived back in Richmond and the weary cavalry leader reported personally to Lee, Lee liked everything he heard. Stewart reported that McClellan's right flank, there north of the Chickahominy, was up in the air. That is, it was not anchored on any natural feature and was thus vulnerable to precisely the sort of attack Lee had in mind. 
After receiving this welcome news, Lee decided to bring Stonewall Jackson's army secretly east from the Shenandoah Valley and have them lead the flank attack north of the Chickahominy. Lee would leave a relatively small force under Magruder and Duget south of the river behind the fortifications and move the divisions of Longstreet, A.P. Hill, and D.H. Hill north to supplement Jackson's flank attack. To get the ball rolling, Lee sent word to Jackson to begin moving his Valley Army to Richmond. Through the first two weeks of June, Lee had contemplated several possible scenarios for Jackson's army. Stonewall had been in regular communication with Lee for several weeks, and after the Battle of Cross Keys on June 8th and the Battle of Port Republic on June 9th, the Union forces in the Valley had pulled back, and Jackson wrote to Lee on the 13th that apart from his receiving substantial reinforcements, he doubted there was much more he could do in the Shenandoah. Lee decided there would be no further benefit to the critical Richmond front by having Jackson continue operations out in the Shenandoah Valley, so he decided it was time to bring Jackson and his men eastward to take part in his plan to strike at McClellan. On Monday, June 16th, Lee wrote to Stonewall to begin moving his troops to Richmond. Lee cautioned Jackson that, quote, the movement must be secret, end quote. But in issuing that warning, Lee was preaching to the choir because Stonewall was already legendary for his penchant for secrecy, so much so that he rarely informed his subordinates of his plans, even while they were marching toward a battle. Jackson began moving his men by rail toward Richmond on June 20th. The Virginia Central Railroad only had about 200 cars it could devote to the task, and so the troops would cram onto them and ride down the line for a while before being unloaded so the cars could go back up the track and pick up another load of soldiers. It was a slow process, but it saved the men some wear and tear on their legs. On Sunday, June 22nd, Jackson reached Fredericks Hall, about 50 miles from Richmond, and decided to rest his men and do no marching that day. That would prove to be the first of many poor decisions that Stonewall Jackson would make over the next 10 days. Jackson's decision to halt all progress on June 22nd, when speed was of the utmost importance and the fate of the Confederate capital hung in the balance, is puzzling to say the least. On that day, when every hour counted, no one marched a single mile, and the Valley Army remained strung out for more than 20 miles. Even a forward movement of just a few miles on the 22nd could have significantly altered the narrative of the Seven Days' Battles. Jackson, maintaining secrecy, indicated to his host at Fredericks Hall that he would breakfast with her in the morning, though he never intended to. Instead, he departed at 1 a.m. with a single aide and two guides and began a 50-mile trek to meet Robert E. Lee at his headquarters at the Dabbs House, northeast of Richmond. After 15 hours in the saddle, Jackson arrived there on the afternoon of June 23rd to take part in the discussions for Lee's grand offensive. Stonewall arrived at Lee's headquarters, dog-tired and covered in dust from the dirt roads. When he arrived, Lee was busy, and the weary Jackson chose to rest against a fence post in the yard. A few minutes later, D.H. Hill came riding up and was surprised to see his brother-in-law resting there in the yard. After spending a few minutes exchanging pleasantries, Jackson and Hill together walked into the Dabbs' house to a back room that served as Lee's office. 
A little while later, James Longstreet and A.P. Hill arrived, and Lee began to outline his plan. Magruder and Duget weren't invited to this meeting, since their roles in the upcoming operation called for them simply to hold in place in front of the Federals south of the Chickahominy near the Seven Pines battlefield. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produce the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time. And the show has a long name. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. By calling together his division commanders for a conference at the Dabbs House on the afternoon of June 23rd, Lee was trying to avoid Joseph E. Johnston's mistake at Seven Pines. Lee wanted to ensure that everyone understood what was expected of them. He later reinforced this by writing out the orders and sending a copy to each commander. Over a map on the table, Lee explained his plan. The Federals' position north of the Chickahominy at Beaver Dam Creek was too strong to take by direct assault, so Jackson would march in from the northwest, coming in behind the flank of the Yankees and compelling them to retreat back toward McClellan's supply base at White House Landing. Jackson would then move east toward Cold Harbor in order to keep the enemy running or cut them off. A.P. Hill was to deploy at the Meadow Bridge, the bridge over the Chickahominy nearest the village of Mechanicsville, and there await word of Jackson's arrival. This word would come by way of General Lawrence O'Brien Branch, whose brigade was ordered to half-sink, a spot north of Mechanicsville. When Jackson approached, he was to communicate with Branch, who would then inform Hill, and Branch would move his brigade south toward Mechanicsville. When Branch appeared above the village on the right flank of the Union outpost there, those Yankees would be forced to retreat, uncovering the Meadow Bridge and allowing Hill's division to cross unopposed. 
Hill would then move forward on the north side of the river, driving away whatever Union force remained near Mechanicsville. This would uncover the other bridges south of the village. On those bridges, Longstreet and D.H. Hill would cross their divisions. As A.P. Hill made a demonstration in front of the enemy's Beaver Dam Creek lines, Jackson's presence on the Yankees' flank should become apparent to the enemy, prompting the Federals to retreat from their strong position along the creek. At that point, Stonewall was to head down the roads to Cold Harbor, and D.H. Hill would cross A.P. Hill's rear and get on Jackson's right flank, pursuing the retreating Union forces. A.P. Hill would advance on D.H. Hill's right, while Longstreet's division, the last to cross the Chickahominy, would fill the gap between A.P. Hill and the river and join in the pursuit of the Federals. An army on the move is much more vulnerable than one waiting behind prepared defenses, and Lee expected that the retreat of the Federal right wing north of the Chickahominy would force McClellan to come out of his defensive lines south of the river and cross over to the north side in order to protect his lines of supply. Once McClellan was on the move, Lee could adjust his plans accordingly, but the important thing is that Lee would have seized the initiative, and he had strong hopes of destroying a portion of McClellan's army. At the very least, Lee could force Little Mac to retreat back down the peninsula with heavy losses, but either way, Richmond would be saved. To pull this off, Lee would leave Magruder in charge of he and Duget's forces in the fortifications in front of the Federals south of the Chickahominy with orders to hold at all costs. Magruder would have to hold off a force nearly three times the size of his own, and this realization cost him no small amount of anxiety. The normally good-natured Magruder would get little sleep over the next few days, and his anxiety and stress resulted in a bad case of upset tummy that would cause him to be uncharacteristically irritable for much of the week. The exact number of troops that Lee had in his army at the start of the campaign varies depending on which source you consult, but it's generally agreed that he had around 85,000 to 90,000 troops under his command once Jackson arrived. This would make it the largest army the Confederacy ever put into the field during the war. Magruder and Huger would hold the fortifications in front of Richmond with about 27,000 men between them. Longstreet, both hills, and the bulk of Jeb Stuart's cavalry would be moved north of the Chickahominy to join Stonewall's approaching 18,000. That meant Lee had between 55,000 and 60,000 troops to launch his left hook against McClellan's right flank. At first glance, Lee's plan seemed like a good one, but closer scrutiny reveals some major flaws. First of all, Lee fundamentally misunderstood where McClellan's forces were located. He believed the majority of the Federal Army, probably three corps, remained north of the Chickahominy, as they had earlier when Joe Johnston launched his attack at Seven Pines. But Lee didn't realize that after that battle, McClellan had moved Franklin's and Sumner's Corps south of the river, leaving only Fitzjohn Porter's V Corps and George McCall's recently arrived division from McDowell's Corps north of the river. That meant nearly 80% of the Union Army was south of the Chickahominy facing Magruder and Huger's thin line. Second, Lee was trying to coordinate a complex set of movements of four separate forces, five if you count Branch's brigade, over miles of ground in the face of the enemy. 
and those movements depended on precise timing. This would be a difficult operation for a veteran army that had served together in many battles, but Lee's army was serving together in its first battle as a combined force under a new commander. This was a very complicated plan for a group of first-timers. Third, Stonewall Jackson's arrival would set in motion the other parts of the plan, and his presence would only be known through the Liaison Brigade of Branch. And finally, everything hinged on Jackson's arrival, so Lee should have made certain that Stonewall could meet the timetable required. Lee would need every hour of daylight to drive the Federals north of the Chickahominy back toward McClellan's supply base at White House Landing, so it was crucial that Jackson be in position early in the morning. Yet instead of taking the lead and setting a precise time to launch the attack, Lee inexplicably did something he would never do again. He left the room and let his subordinate commanders decide when the assault should begin. After discussing the plan for a few minutes, it was decided that since Jackson had the farthest distance to march, he should set the attack time. Jackson quickly said June 25th, indicating his men would be ready in just over 36 hours. Realizing the difficulty Stonewall would have in accomplishing this, Longstreet apparently urged Jackson to give himself one more day, and Stonewall agreed. And so on Thursday, June 26th, was set as the day of the attack. But still, this meant that by the time Jackson completed the trek back to his army, he would have only 48 hours to move his men nearly 50 miles to be in position for the attack. That was a tall order for even Jackson's famous foot cavalry. It was a tall order, and it proved too much, since Jackson wouldn't be able to execute his part of the plan, and his was the most important part. At any rate, when Lee returned to the room, he was informed of the attack date, didn't challenge it, and dismissed the gathered generals. Lee then sent out written orders to try to make doubly sure there was no confusion among his subordinates. He should have taken the time to write better orders, however, since the ones he dispatched were ambiguous and left too much to the interpretation of the various commanders involved. These interpretations would lead to Lee's best-laid plans going astray on June 26th. Stonewall Jackson left the Dabbs House meeting and set off on the long ride back to his lines, losing a second consecutive night of sleep. At this juncture, we should probably say, at the risk of giving away one of the major plot lines of the Seven Days Battles, that Stonewall Jackson's performance in the campaign is going to be less than spectacular, and that's a charitable characterization. There have been any number of explanations offered to explain why Jackson performed so poorly here during the seven days when he had performed so well in the previous months. Sleep deprivation has frequently been cited as the culprit, and exhaustion certainly will wreak havoc with Stonewall's mental state during the upcoming campaign. But we'll just point out that while Jackson gets singled out for suffering inordinately from fatigue, others also were exhausted, but they aren't given the benefit of having their military sins absolved in the same way. At any rate, the fact is that Jackson last had a full night's sleep on June 21st. He spent the nights of June 22, 23, and 23, 24 in the saddle without any sleep in between. 
And on the night of June 24th, either too excited about the upcoming campaign, or as some have suggested, simply too exhausted to sleep, he didn't get any rest. He also caught very little sleep on the 25th as he moved his army into position, though he was well behind schedule. A more rational choice of Friday the 27th as the attack date likely would have fixed all these problems. But remember, Jackson originally suggested the 25th. And that in itself is probably an indication that Stonewall's fatigue was already clouding his judgment and leading to bad decisions. When the tired Jackson returned to his army, he discovered that he'd left a mess of things when he departed on his secret mission. Stonewall should have left orders ensuring that the Valley Army continued making progress toward Richmond as rapidly as possible in his absence. He had capable officers such as Dick Yule to whom he could have delegated this important responsibility, but instead he chose to entrust this task to his inept chief of staff, the Reverend Dapney. We didn't really open this up previously on the podcast when talking about Stonewall, but Jackson, ever the devoted Presbyterian, had hired his preferred minister, Dabney, as his chief of staff, regardless of how unqualified Dabney may have been for the military job. It's kind of mind-boggling that Stonewall convinced Reverend Dabney to join the army, even though he lacked any military aptitude and wouldn't develop any such skills through his association with Jackson. Stonewall's officers thought Dabney was abysmal as a chief of staff, and those who suffered through his sermons, especially his three-hour marathon on predestination on Sunday, June 22nd, probably also questioned his value as a preacher. Nevertheless, Jackson gave Dabney the task of keeping the troops moving while he was off on a secret mission, but Dabney was hopelessly out of his element in trying to force his will on the marching columns, and the Valley Army's progress slowed to a crawl. Jackson returned to find his men still had a long way to go to get where they needed to be for their vital part in Lee's plan. Lee expected Jackson to start at 3 a.m. on June 26th from a point to the north of Mechanicsville, but after his return, Stonewall had to consolidate his army and resume the march over the poor roads that crossed the rain-soaked Virginia countryside, and by midnight he was still several miles short of his destination. He decided to resume marching at 2.30 in the morning on the 26th in order to make up some of the lost ground, but Stonewall must have been aware that he would never be able to pull off Lee's expected morning flank attack. Lee's orders, however, didn't specify when Jackson should arrive, and Stonewall may have misunderstood the importance of an early morning appearance on the Yankees' flank. At any rate, for the Confederates, there would be plenty of other misunderstandings and much confusion before that Thursday was over. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is actually not a book. It's a series of 12 lectures, and the lectures by Gary Gallagher are titled Robert E. Lee and His High Command, and this is part of the Great Courses series, which some of you may already be familiar with. 
Yeah, the Great Courses series covers just about every topic under the sun, uh, not just in history, but they do have three offerings having to do with the Civil War and Abraham Lincoln, and here, Robert E. Lee and his high command. We have this particular one on 12 CDs, although if you'd rather, you can download any of the Great Courses digitally, just like you would an audiobook, and listen that way. These lectures on Lee and his generals are given by Gary Gallagher, whose name should be familiar to you guys since we've already recommended some of his books. We actually hesitated a little to make these lectures our recommendation for this episode, since if you do listen to them, you'll realize just what rubbish our podcast is, uh, but we decided to go ahead and take that chance, since this really is a great resource for you, especially here at the start of our discussion of the Seven Days Battles. Don't forget you can find all of our recommendations if you go to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then we have a couple of new members to welcome into the ranks of the Strawfoot Brigade, Gilbert and Andre. And the last member's episode, number 35, was about Prince Albert, England's unsung hero of the American Civil War. And then as we mentioned in this show, with the next couple of members' episodes, we're going to look at Jeb Stewart's life story and cover his famous ride all the way around the Army of the Potomac in June of 1862. So we're looking forward to sharing that with the members of the Strawfoot Brigade. And as we close, thanks always to Spiritwood Music for allowing us to use their song Midnight on the Water as the music you hear at the beginning and end of each episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we look at the first of the Seven Days Battles, the battles of Oak Grove on June 25th and Mechanicsville on June 26th. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.